You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We're uh, calling this series the uh, uh, Evergreen Pants Series. And uh, we're looking at Genesis 1 through 4. And what we're finding is that the dynamics of life and all of its richness are depicted for us in a garden. And there's an invitation here for refreshment and renewal to come to life itself, to know the gardener who has made himself known to us fully in Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw God singing with delight over all that he's made, including you and me. This week, we hear God telling his first human creatures to take care of that over which he sings. So I hope to make four points tonight, but before I do, let's take a moment just to continue the story and read on. I'll read for us if you'll allow, but please open your Bible uh, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to read down to the first half of verse 4 in chapter 2. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you could say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're hearing God's holy word. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And this is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just heard never will. Well, I don't know if you caught this quirky little story that was in the news last week. Uh, about a raccoon. Apparently, the garden uh, revolted in the form of a plucky raccoon set on a coup. Uh, this raccoon struck at the heart of the 
global human enterprise, uh, taking uh, out one of our major financial institutions in the grand city of St. Paul, Minnesota. Apparently, he donned a mask and uh, climbed this building for 20 hours and uh, achieved 25 floors of elevation while all of Minnesota and most of the Internet seemed to come to nearly a complete halt. And the question it raises for me is, had the raccoon read Genesis 1? Did the raccoon know that in this garden, baby, humans are number one? We're in charge. Which brings us to our first point, point number one, that you are made in God's image. You are made as God's image. Talking about us, not raccoons here. But let's take a few minutes to just explore what that means. Many uh, throughout history have guessed at the image of God. Music goes something like this. We look at how we're similar to God, how we're not similar to animals, and imagine that this must represent the image of God. I think it's better to look at the actual words in the text against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern culture. And the primary word we want to think about tonight is the word image. It's there in verse 26, 27. The word image in the Hebrew comes from the word to carve or to chisel. It's used of sculptures and statues and physical idols. The word likeness means uh, similarity. The picture, therefore, we get is of an artisan, a craftsman, in a workshop with a hammer and chisel working on a block of stone or a chunk of wood, carving away, chiseling, uh, something that is, bears a resemblance to himself, something that would express who he is, something that would represent him when he's not present. This is what God seems to be doing in Genesis chapter 1, making of human beings representatives that express who he is. Now, this concept of image has two other concepts attached to it, uh, power and authority. In the ancient world, in the Near East, when there was an image, it was assumed to carry the power that belonged to the original of which it was a copy. Archaeologists have found inscriptions on tombs in Egypt using the letter F, as in Frank, but the heads are cut off. The reason for that is, we believe, that the letter F looks like a snake, and an image of a snake was thought to have the same power as a snake itself, and so they decapitated the letter F so that it, it, the letter itself wouldn't bite those who were buried in the tomb. Interesting to think that those of us who are images of God have the power of God associated with us. The other aspect that's associated with the concept of image is authority. In the ancient Near East, a king was said to be the image of the local deity. And that meant to them that the king bore the authority of the local deity. You may remember King Tut, some of us. King Tut, his full name is Tut Uncommon. And Tut Uncommon means the living image of Amun, the god Amun. So that when someone would come and bow before the authority of the pharaoh of Egypt, Tut Uncommon, they're really bowing before the god uh, Amun and, and the authority of the deity. 
We see an example of this in the Bible in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar builds a tower. It's probably in his own image, his own likeness. And he says when the music starts playing, then everybody's required to bow down. Uh, Oftentimes a king would place these images throughout their empire and conquered lands to represent his authority to those people so that they would be very clear about who governs in that region. So again, to think of ourselves as human beings in the image of God, bearing not only God's power or capability, but bearing God's resemblance so that we can represent his authority, his rule to all of creation. In this sense, we're meant to be vice regents or ambassadors to physically represent God's power and authority in creation. This is remarkable, really, when you think of every single human being. This is true of them. A woman in childbirth, a baby who's emerging, a trucker, a toddler with toothpaste in her hair, uh, a telemarketer, teacher, troublemaker, the person who's sitting on a bench bent over a brown paper bag. All of them and us, a wonder to behold if we really understood who God has made us to be. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of raccoons. This raccoon seemed not to know its place. Here we see a picture of the raccoon uh, ominously poised, it seems to me, above the state capitol in St. Paul in the upper right hand. This, uh, we don't exactly know what the raccoon's intent were, but she clearly has some mischief on her mind. Meanwhile, all the Minnesotans are at the foot of the building, falling in gooey love with this furry creature. Thankfully, there was one clear-headed human on the Internet who uh, tweeted uh, good sense. His name is at Drew McCoy, and he tweets, Raccoons are nasty, horrible, garbage-eating varmints. Do not be fooled by their attempts to be cute. This building-climbing scheme is just part of their nefarious plot to take over the world. Stay vigilant, is what he says. Now, obviously, we know raccoons can be very, very dangerous. (laughs) Stay vigilant. So the point that at Drew McCoy is, of course, trying to make is that, you know, we've already given raccoons our garbage cans. Do we also have to give them our offices? Really seems to be asking, who's really in charge here? Humans or raccoons? I, I think the text in Genesis would invite us to reframe that question uh, better to say, who has responsibility here? And I think the answer is we do. Which brings me to our second point. God, the garden is our responsibility. The first thing that God asks of his image bearers in creation is, please take care of the garden. Now, I know that we've had a field day with some of the terms in this text, particularly verse 28, words like subdue and dominion, and I will come to those in a moment. But let me just invite you to step back for a second and think about the whole arc of the biblical narrative and what implications that arc has for environmental stewardship. And I'd like to offer uh, three principles that you'll find there. The first is God made it all. And the second is God has put us in charge of it all. And the third is that God is redeeming it all. So let me just walk through that with you briefly. Uh, God made it all, and therefore it all belongs to God. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, including raccoons. And Leviticus 25 says, God says the land is mine. Psalm 50 says, every wild animal of the forest is mine. Speaking to God, Psalm 89 says, the heavens 
are yours. So this attaches great value to animals and to the world, to a matter, stuff like this music stand. Matter matters to God. Remember, in chapter 1, we see God singing with delight over all that he has made. It, it, the, the natural world brings God joy, delights his heart. And so it matters. Now, if you ask most people in Seattle, why should we be engaged uh, as stewards of the earth? I think most people say, well, because the earth is all we have. And, and that's true. But let me suggest to you, that's not the greatest reason to care for uh, creation. That's what I would call an instrumental reason. And there's lots of instrumental good in the natural world, meaning we can use it for good things. But if your greatest reason to care for the earth is that it's good for you, that it keeps you alive, notice you're still at the center of this, and you're essentially just using the natural world. But what Genesis 1 invites us to consider is that the natural world actually has intrinsic, not just instrumental, but intrinsic value. Which is to say, it's not ultimately for me. It's not ultimately mine or yours, actually. It exists to bring pleasure to God. And it matters just because God loves it. And see, to me, I think that's an even greater motivation to care uh, for the natural world. God made it all. And the second is God puts us in charge of it all. Now, notice chapter 2. We're going to look at this twice. Uh, verse 5, first of all. This is really interesting. We're told in verse 5 that there is no herb of the field or plant of the field yet for, meaning because, and now we get the reason, and there are two reasons. The first is it hadn't rained yet in this account of creation. And the second is there was no one to till the ground. Now, that's interesting. The assumption of the biblical writer at this point under the influence of the Holy Spirit is that you couldn't have vegetation because you don't have rain and you don't have a human being to till it and to keep it, to, to no gardener. That's really interesting because what it says is that God has designed an uh, ecosystem for which a human gardener is essential. And that you and I have been designed primarily here to care for a sustainable ecology. That's our purpose. And, and, and so the rest says, of course you couldn't have anything green because you don't have a garden, you don't have a human yet. See the assumption behind that. God puts us in charge of all things. And as biblical revelation unfolds, God makes covenant with Israel and begins to give many wonderful instructions for how it is we care about. Most people don't know this part of the Bible. We see, for example, in Leviticus 25, God says every seventh year I want you to give the land a Sabbath, a rest. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25, it says, don't muzzle an ox while he's threshing the grain. Uh, care for the ox. In Deuteronomy 20, when you go to war, as you would inevitably do, don't cut down any fruit-bearing trees. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, this is a delight, I think. If you ever come across a nest, it says, notice whether there are eggs or chicks, because if there are, then don't take the mother away from the nest. Isaiah 5 says, I will hold you accountable for how you use the land. In other words, we bear responsibility. It's our responsibility. The natural order is our responsibility. It's been trusted to us. Uh, we are in charge. And then the third thing, God is redeeming it all. Well, this is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old, we read that the mountains and the hills before you 
God shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands, Isaiah 55. I love that image. And then in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The text goes on to speak of good news, which, quote, has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, all creatures, great and small. God is redeeming it all, uh, which means we have to get rid of this bad idea that somehow God is just going to, at some point, eject all the good people off the planet and then burn it up and destroy it. That is not the biblical notion. Uh, That is not the story that's told in the Bible. In fact, God is redeeming all things. Jesus, in Revelation, says, Behold, I make all things new. He's renewing all things. So you can see, God made it all. He's put us in charge of it all. He's redeeming it all. This is a wonderful mandate for environmental stewardship. Take care of it. Now, back in St. Paul, Minnesota, it was 2.45 a.m. the very next day before the authorities, by which I mean the humans, began to get the upper hand. Somebody found a can of cat food in a cage, and the Department of Safety and Inspections dispatched a, a crack team from the Wildlife Management Services to scale the building themselves. We could do it. Uh, they used the elevator, and they got to the top, and they put these uh, defensive measures on the roof, armed them, and withdrew quickly. A spokesperson would later say that the raccoon offered very little resistance. Which raises another question, how should we suppress such uprisings in the future? How does God expect those who have responsibility for the natural world to steward it or to manage it? And the answer from the text is to serve, to do it in the same way that God does. Which brings me to our third point, we're called to serve. We are called to use our delegated Authority and power just the way God uses it himself, which is to serve. Now let's come to these troubling words, subdue and dominion. They're in verse 28 of chapter 1. Hebrew scholars tell us that there is no hint, not in the slightest way, of degradation, of consumption, or of self-interest in these two Hebrew words. Bruce Waltke, the great Hebrew scholar, uh, tells us that what they do communicate to us is taking charge of what resists authority. And that's interesting because it's God's authority that we're to be so jealous of, taking charge of what resists God's authority. And God's interest is to see that it is good. And so all we're to do is to look for places where the world is not good. And how do we engage that resistance? Well, we find out in verse 15. Here's the second time we look at chapter 2. Just look down that page, and you see this. I think the best way to really understand the verbs in verse 28, understand the verbs in verse 15 that illuminates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, here are the verbs, to till it and to keep it. Now, that Hebrew word keep, it means to guard or to preserve. And the Hebrew word till is the very ordinary and very common word in the Old Testament for serve. God put the man in the garden to serve, to serve, to serve. That's how we are to serve the garden. That's how we're to relate to it. We exist to serve. Our highest purpose as human beings, you're never more human than when you serve. 
We are royal servants, servant rulers. And, of course, this is what we see God doing throughout the whole of the Bible. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ, though he's in the form of God, though he is God, empties himself, taking the form of a slave. And Jesus teaches in Mark 10, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so he's our model. I I just wonder this week if you might find yourself in a place where you have an opportunity not to be served, but to serve. Perhaps it will be at the dinner table tonight. To serve humans. Uh, That's what human rights are all about, to serve humans. The humans are creatures as well. But then to serve the natural world, the rest of creation, to help it flourish in some way. Well, before this assailant made it top to the top of the building in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, she stopped for an undisclosed but prolonged period of time on the windowsill of a particular office on the 20th floor. I was curious about this, did a little bit of spade work, and I found in some reporting by the New York Times, the person who occupied that office happened to be a personal injury attorney. I kind of get a kick out of that because if you look closely, you can see the uh, raccoon seems to be looking with her eyes through the glass, looking for some kind of assistance from this attorney. She's actually the one who gets the credit for this, for this photograph. Now, I think that's sort of funny, a personal injury attorney. I wanted to show you a picture of the attorney, but our media services said, without a consent form, we can't actually show you a picture of another human being, especially an attorney. Um, So I made a couple of adjustments to the image, but I really think you do need to see it. Here's the lawyer right there. Uh, This this raises the question of, of where would you turn if you had made a really bad decision and the whole world was watching? Where would you turn if you'd gotten yourself into a whole heap of trouble because you'd been given responsibility, you hadn't done a very good job with it, and now you don't know what to do next? Of course, you'd look for a good lawyer, and here one is. Which leads me to my final point, number four. Jesus restores us to God so that we can restore creation. It occurred to me this week as I was reflecting on this that the environmentalist needs Jesus not just to save her soul, but to help her save the planet. When we have natural disasters, oftentimes people will ask a Christian, how does God happen to allow this to happen? And I'm getting increasingly agnostic about whether it's God who bears responsibility for this. I mean, just think about this. Throughout the whole history of human life on this planet, how many wars we have fought with one another. And imagine if we had invested just a fraction to say nothing of all of the amount of time and energy and money we have invested in warfare, in caring for creation, in being vice-regents with the good creator. We'd be in a very different place right now technologically, educationally, in terms of medicine, architecture. I I just got to believe that we wouldn't be building settlements below the uh, waterline, places like Bangladesh that could be so easily wiped out by a storm, or, you know, places like Guatemala uh, uh, in unprotected and poor substandard housing below volcanoes. What I'm saying is I just wonder how much 
a price the earth pays because human beings have focused so much on our warfare. In some sense, it seems like we owe the planet a debt. Humanity owes the planet a debt. And the Bible does teach that there is a deep spiritual problem at root here, that when human beings turn away from God, there is spiritual alienation, alienation from God. But the spiritual alienation also alienates us from the natural world as well. We are dislocated from our place in creation. George Whitfield uh, the great 18th century evangelist preached a sermon called The Method of Grace. And in it, he says, you know, the reason the animals rise up against us is because they know that we have a quarrel with their master. Isn't that interesting? Somehow the animals know that we have a quarrel with the master. The lion growls, you know, and the dog barks at you, he says, because you know, they would never dare do that if you were standing in, in, your, in your place as an image of God with all the power and authority of God, they wouldn't dare. But because they know you've sinned and turned away from God, then they, they know you have a quarrel with their master and they growl at you. It's kind of an interesting thought. But Paul says something similar in Romans 8 where he says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The creation is yearning for humanity to come and redress that's that which it caused to go wrong in the natural world. And, of course, the good news of the gospel is that the master has made a surprising move, that God has taken on humanity to pay the price for our destructive ways in creation. And this is the beauty of what God has done in Jesus. Jesus is, the Bible tells us, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the perfect image of God, which now you know means that he bears all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. And, and, and Colossians, that was Colossians 1. Colossians 3 tells us that he renews us as God's image through knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more we know him, the more we are restored to the fullness and the goodness of our place as image, image bearers, image of God. So, uh, in short, Jesus is our lawyer. He is our advocate and the only one we will ever need. He forgives us for our irresponsibility and he empowers us to take responsibility. Or to help you remember, I would just say that he restores us to serve, which is my third point. He restores us to take responsibility, the second point, and he restores us to live as images of his power and authority. That was the first point. So this week, let's look for an opportunity to care for creation. Finally, it may be that tonight, before you go to bed, you'll have occasion to interact with a furry friend. And maybe a creature will rub up against your leg looking for the touch of heaven, and you'll be there. If that happens, I want that creature to remind you of who you are and who God is. Because sometimes Jesus makes his presence known to us in very unexpected ways. Mary Magdalene discovered this on Easter Sunday when she found herself at the mouth of the empty tomb. And she could have sworn she was talking to the gardener. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of being made in your image. What a gift to be a human being. 
to be loved by you, to be known by you, to be empowered by you to serve. Sometimes we get a little overwhelmed when we look at the chaos in the natural world. Um, Help us to trust you, that we might participate in your redeeming work. We might be a community that brings healing within creation. Give us the full measure of your Holy Spirit and give us eyes to see the opportunities. We pray in Christ's name. Pray it for your sake and glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.